The Eckhart and Coca Report, episode 125. Welcome to the Eckhart and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Lacard and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. All right, well, hello and welcome to this most recent episode of the Akkad and Coca Report. Uh, today, we're lucky to have uh, Dr. Greg Gonzalez uh, visiting us. Dr. Gonzalez is, uh, is famous because he has a Wikipedia entry. <laughs> Yeah. which uh, I learned all about all about uh, him he um he he grew up in new york um was a was an aids activist and did a lot of amazing work spent some time in south africa you know championing policy making there um and uh ultimately uh, now is a uh, you know joined uh, the yale school of public health in 2017 and uh he is affiliated with the public health modeling unit there also the Yale program in addiction medicine. Um, and he has uh, quite a massive Twitter following. He's very active on Twitter. And uh, that's where I, I kind of uh, ran across some of his tweets on, uh, on, on the COVID uh, epidemic. Uh, and he has a lot of strong opinions on um, what we should be doing. And I thought we would uh, be great to have him kind of come on and tell us about, uh, tell us more about um, uh, what he thinks. So thanks again for coming on. Anytime. So Dr. Gonzalez, I guess the first thing I was wondering we could chat about, um, you know, the modeling, uh, modeling for, you know, infectious disease models. And uh, there's been a, a lot of different, you know, modeling that's been done. There's been a lot of po policy changes that have um, happened because of modeling. Um, how are you, uh, you know, how do you, how do you think uh, the modeling community ha has done? So, you know, so there's a diversity of modelers, right, out there. Um, you know, I'm in the public health modeling unit at Yale, and we have, I'd say, th two or three people who do sort of straight-up disease modeling, which everybody has seen sort of uh, on the front pages of their local newspapers, even, uh, which right. never happens. Um, and people who do other kinds of things like cost-effectiveness analyses. I tend to do sort of operations research based analyses. So there's lots of kinds of um, modeling that's sort of floating out there. The ones I think you're referring to are the models that have come out of Imperial College of Medicine um, or the Institute for Health Metrics at the University of Washington that have tried to sort of set some bounds on um, the magnitude of uh, infections and deaths around the um, coronavirus epidemic. Um, you know, it happens with every epidemic. It happened with Ebola and it's happened with COVID-19. Um, the range of model predictions is pretty wide. Um, and uh, it's always because you're parameterizing a model without any data when you start off. Um, and so the initial estimates are always sort of wide enough that you could drive a truck through. But I think uh, in a qualitative sense, I think they all sort of projected that we would see uh, massive, massive amounts of deaths and infections uh, worldwide and including in the U.S. And, um, you know, if it was between 60,000 and 200,000 um, uh, potential deaths, um, I think we'll probably fall somewhere in the middle when this is all over. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it seems like the IHME models, um, certainly from a from a death standpoint, certainly are not off by orders of magnitude. It does. It does look like the uh, the Imperial College uh, uh, model, which I guess is an SIR model, um, uh, 
um, th that had a, a really wide uh, prediction interval, if you will. I think uh, it's, you know they estimated for the U I think the U.S. one to two million folks dying, and that is that a function of you know you, you referenced the Ebola um, models and and how how they kind of performed. Um, is that a function of just SIR models not being not being that great in terms of modeling what actually happens or well, I mean, just think of weather prediction. It's just like, you know, predictive models are, you know, I can't remember which Yogi Berra said it, like it's it's very difficult, especially, it's difficult to predict, especially yeah. about the future. And then like, so the Imperial model was based on no social distancing. It was based on early projections of, of, of parameters in the model. I think Imperial's coming out with a new set of projections for all 50 states um, imminently, because I heard little bits of rumblings from over there. Um, are trying to sort of uh, refine their state-based estimates. Um, so yeah, they were the sort of most um, scary projections compared to the IHME model. And they're very different models. IHME is a statistical um, right. model. So, it's, it's fitting a line and right. fitting a curve um, where the uh, Imperial model, the model coming out of Harvard, the models coming out of Columbia, other places, or SER models that are sort of compartmental dynamic models that really sort of trade in the biology of transmission and uh, personal interactions right. in terms of disease progression. Right. It's it seems like the uh, HME model, like I said, it's just a, it's a, a little bit of a curve fitting exercise to kind of what's ha what's happened. Uh, you know, what happened in Italy, what happened in Spain, and then and then you know it's constantly updating based on what the trajectory of deaths is 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 here. Um, uh, so. One of the one of the interesting things with the IHME model that's kind of relevant um, that that a lot of us are talking about is the is 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 how they come up came up with their estimates for uh, number of hospital beds that are needed, how many ventilators that are needed, um, and you know because they were kind of a, a model that wasn't biological, you know, wasn't bi biological and didn't have a, a lot of the um, estimates that um, or the assumptions that an SIR model you know, kind of rests on in terms of what's what's the infection fatality rate, what's the case fatality rate, what's the R not, which which is super hard, especially when you have something that's exponential to try to model and and, and get and get close. Um, the IHME model, of course, is you know is just kind of modeling, trying to model trajectory of deaths, and then kind of working backward from deaths to get to how many um, how many hospital beds you may need, or how many ICU uh, how many uh, you know ICUs you need, or how many vents you need. Um, and it turned out that the IHME model was also was was off by a fair amount in terms of how many beds and how many ICU, you know, uh, and how many vents and stuff you would need. Is, is there something to learn? I, I don't know if in, in your discussions, is there something to learn from this in terms of trying to figure out in the future how we can um, be better at, at pre predicting on, on that front because th those have some really large implications in terms of what one does as a society or what one does even as as a hospital right in terms of trying to have the um, have 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 what you need and project forward two weeks right so um, I, I was I was a little surprised in terms of how far off the IHME model for instance was in terms of how many events. Uh, or how many ICU beds you know uh, New York would need, for instance, right? Um, that seems to that, that seems to be you know such a wide gap there that I wonder what may have gone wrong uh, and and what we can learn going forward. 
So I, you know, so I don't, I am not a compartment. I don't do disease modeling per se like this, but what, you know, looking at Ebola and then looking at COVID-19, I think maybe the use for these kinds of models are not in sort of um, new epidemics in real time. Um, one is because you don't know very much about the disease, you don't have very much data to parameterize your models. Um, what you see models doing well is like thinking about, you know, you know, if we're thinking about vaccine preventable diseases around the world, you know, what kind of um, uh, trade-offs do we have to make given assumptions about uh, the prevalence and incidence of certain diseases, the sort of basic uh, biological parameters that we're talking about. I think it's really hard to do prediction in real time. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's very interesting. I've been talking to a bunch of people who, I've been filling out a lot of um, declarations and affidavits for prison cases, getting people out of prisons, um, along with a lot of clinicians as well. Um, and some people said, can you do a model that can tell us like how bad it's gonna get in prison? And I just say, very bad. <laughs> I mean, it's like, sometimes you need a model to tell you what's going on. And sometimes you can sort of look, you know, look behind you and see what's happening. I think a lot of the ICU bed, hospital capacity stuff is, is that remember it, these models are parameterized on a national basis or even on a state basis they're not for like a hospital system or city often and um uh and with all these moving parts as all this data is coming and i think it's really i think a lot of pressure is put on the models when when sort of just sort of um uh their their use isn't in sort of these acute uh fast moving situations i think it's much better to think about it um uh, as something to sort of do these larger exercises to think about how do you allocate resources and what's going to happen rather than sort of a crystal ball um, to tell you what's going to happen in your hospital tomorrow or what's going to happen in your state tomorrow. Um, I, I think you get crude estimates. You're not going to get something yeah. that's very refined. Do you get the sense that when we, when we started when we started this process, the idea was to try to, was it, was it to minim, was it to uh, get get the number of fatalities to be as low as possible or or was it was the idea to try to not you know not not overwhelm the healthcare system there's this constant divide that you hear now it's like well what is our goal do you feel like that goal has shifted over time or do you feel like we've had the same goal throughout and i, okay. I asked that it's a related question because uh, you know how do we know whether we're going to overwhelm the healthcare system you know, it seems very, as you're saying, it seems very hard in real time to be able to figure out, are we going to be able to overwhelm it or not? Well, I mean, so the American epidemic occurred with some sort of previous history of what was happening in China and Spain and Italy. And yeah. um, I think, you know, if you, I just saw something in the, on the New York Times or some website just now about New Zealand saying they have right. eradicated um, the coronavirus, um, which is not where we, we're going to go. I mean, it's pretty clear right. when we were in February and March that it's no worse than the flu, right. all the sort of sort of down, our inability right. to test that we were never going to be New Zealand, right? We were never going to be, we're going right. to contain, eradicate, and move on and keep ourselves from having any sort of uh, subsequent outbreaks. I think we were always in damage control. And the question was like, how much like Italy were we going to be, right? And, you know, if you live in New York City, you, you it, the yeah. worst case scenario did occur. Um, you know, a lot of governors and mayors are like, ah, we, you know, we didn't overwhelm our ICU capacity in, in our state or our, our, our city or our town. Um, but it's clearly, um, we, we did have a sort of diverse epidemic in the U.S. in which there were certain cities in which ICU beds uh, were, were in 
desperately short supply, and I think there's still state, uh, cities and states uh, struggling with this right now. The um, yeah, no, absolutely right. The um, the other what you bring I mean, up let me, is let me ask you just oh, sorry. Uh, sorry one one question here. The, the so there's as you notice such a variability in the U.S. Um, when we say we're not uh, we're not going to be able to get to the point where New Zealand is, uh, isn't it conceivable that certain communities or certain states in the U.S. could you know, hope to achieve uh, the same, or is it is it a legal sort of uh, um, uh, impairment to to allowing states or communities to have uh, sort of uh, to lock down their own uh, or, or to set their own policy? So state and so public health in the U.S. is all state and local. It's it's very there's some powers at the federal level, but all the sort of rubber hits the road in terms of testing, contact tracing, isolation at the at the state and local level. Um, Carlos Del Rio, who's from uh, Emory University School of Medicine, uh, infectious disease doctor down there, said the idea of, of sort of clamping down and, and being successful in one state given uh, sort of a lackadaisical attitude in other states is like having a peeing section in a swimming pool. It's, it's, it's unless you're gonna contain it within a sort of national context, it's very hard to think that, you know, New York is not gonna suffer from what New Jersey does, from what Pennsylvania does, right. what Delaware does. So, so in essence, it's these uh, intercom. I mean, you know, interstate commerce uh, laws, perhaps that, uh, in a way, would prevent one state from isolating itself from the rest of. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's why you see the governors, like in the Northeast, uh, Midwest, and on the West Coast, sort of gathering together to say, "Can we do all this together?" Because I think they they understand the sort of mutual independence of their fates, um, and so. Um, so how will how, how will. Uh... How will New Zealand manage to stay uh, COVID-free given uh, given that? I mean, it almost seems like they would have to kind of, uh, g given that it's a pandemic and it's, you know, spread global, you know, it's all over. Um, are they going to have to, uh, it sounds like they're going to massively restrict any travel into New Zealand if they want to try to uh, avoid uh, avoid this from happening. Or, or you come into New Zealand and you're in 14-day quarantine. Yeah, um, right, right, right. You know, it's, you know, you know, I, I, I'm sure the prime minister of New Zealand realizes that, you know, they can't sort of, you know, seal off what well, you could seal off. It's an island. Right. And like, but I think it's, it's, um, there, my sense is that for these countries that are sort of getting close to eradicating, they're going to be like 14, 14 day quarantine, keep testing in the community. Yeah. They're going to do everything that they've done right before. But I, I assume, you know, prime minister right. Erner is in it for the long haul. Um, I don't know how long the long haul is going to be because we've seen in Singapore and other places that even right. places that have sort of cracked down hard on the virus are seeing, you know, uh, new cases pop up. A lot of them are imported, right? A lot of them are coming right. from international travel and, and uh, business travel. Right. So testing, testing will get us out of this mess, apparently. Um, how, how confident are you that um, we would be able to, because it sounds like a lot of the public health folks feel strongly that, you know, a scaling up testing uh, to some level in the United States will, you know, allow us to, I guess, effectively isolate and contact trace. Is that, is that the general thought? Yeah, but it's not, you know, it's like, if you're a physician, you know, you want to be able to uh, understand what's going on across your patient's body and testing its way we understand what's going on across the sort of body of, of the American epidemic and figuring out where, where the uh, hotspots are that are, that are uh, allowing the virus to flourish. Where they're where they're hiding lingering cases, 
Um, and you know, this is what New Zealand and South Korea and others have done is, is basically to use testing as a way to flush out uh, the magnitude and the scope of the infection across their countries and then chase down every case, uh, isolate them, uh, find out who their contacts are and isolate them. I mean, this has been like since 1870 in right. the UK, you know, there was a, I think it was the Vaccine Resistors League, which doesn't make me happy, but like they didn't want to do any of sort of the cowpox um, proto-vaccination uh, and did case identification contact tracing and isolation to rid their community of Leicester, England of smallpox. And that's what we're doing now is essentially, you know, 150 years later. Do you, do you think that um, this particular virus uh, presents difficulties with that in part because uh, there's a belief that um, there's transmission that happens before you're significantly symptomatic. I know there's some debate about whether you can be truly asymptomatic or whether you're just pre-symptomatic. But the point is that, you know, you're not, you know, it's not like Ebola where, or or not like SARS-CoV-1. Um, um, it seems like there's more transmission that may, may occur in that pre-symptomatic phase. Does that make contact tracing? Um, does that make testing uh, much, much harder to do? It doesn't make contact tracing that much harder to do. It just... Um, we're always, contact tracing is always assuming that if I'm infected, um, you're, I'm going to tell you all the people I've seen for the past two weeks, and you're going to go talk to all of them, and you're going to test all of them, whether they're symptomatic or not. I mean, it's it's really like shoe leather epidemiology. Um, you know, in the context of the healthcare setting, you know, people are getting tested because they're symptomatic. In the context of contact tracing, you're going to be tested because you knew me, and you spent time with me, and you're an infection risk. Um, and whether you have a mild case or a, uh, an asymptomatic case, you should be, um, unless you're really, really early in the infection, you should have recoverable RNA uh, to, to give us a diagnosis if you're positive so we can chase down the rest of the contacts. Right. So if you're, if you're symptomatic, um, again, some of, the, some of the issues with this particular disease is that it's, 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 it's a, uh, you know, in the respiratory tract, um, the sensitivity of the RNA test um, is not that high. Um, you know, it, it's very hard to get a, to pinpoint exactly what it is, but certainly in the China series, for instance, about 40% of the, of the folks that they said had COVID were test negative. Um, so if you assume, you know, 50, 60% sensitivity or something, whatever, whatever range you want, um, there's a significant portion of folks that are going to be, um, PCR negative. Um, you know, so this is a little different than, you know, PCR, in or, or or you know uh, something like Ebola where where you know um, blood samples or whatnot may be able to be used to to give you something, but so is that it, does that make things more difficult? It's just that it, the false positives make things more difficult, and you know false I negatives think, in this case, yeah. The, right, sorry, the false negatives right. um, are going to make things more difficult. I mean, it's interesting. You know, we may have to be doing a double. Uh, 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 an initial test and then a backup test in the case of contact tracing or have better tests. Um, even, you know, we just sort of, you know, not in the context of contact tracing, but for HIV, you can have a rapid test to screen and then you confirm with, with something like a Western blot or something like that. So um, right now we're using tests that are, do have false negatives and um, it, it's a problem, right. um, but that's what we've got. And that's how, you know, right. But so that's that's what I, I mean with 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 our best tests being giving you a 
30, 40% false, um, false negative rate, how the heck, how the heck would we be able to stand up an effective tracing program or stand well, up an effective isolation program? Well, if, if one of the two of you were my contacts and you had a positive test and you had a negative test, um, I would say, you know, you're going to go into isolation. So you should probably self-distance, uh, self-isolate for 14 days too. Um, even if, even if you don't have a uh, recoverable virus at that point. So I think there's going to be some sort of clinical judgment, clinical judgment, and also sort of saying like, look, you know, you're, you, all of you are contacts with Greg, who's, who, who's had disease. Um, can I ask you just to limit your, your movement for the, the next 14 days? I mean, it's clear that, that um, the New Zealand uh, but, public yeah. health response was using the same, everybody's using the same tests, uh, relatively the same tests. Right. Um, uh, and so I, I think even within imperfect tests, have been countries have been able to sort of um, yeah. figure out how to, to, to do this. Is that, could that be because again, South Korea and New Zealand had, a, had an outbreak, had outbreaks that were much, much, much smaller than anything that, you know, happened in say New York or I mean, in basically the entire United States as well. I mean, you know, there, how many different places in the United States, how many metro areas have outbreaks that are way larger than what, what New Zealand has or even what South Korea had? Um, is it, is it, uh, is it, a fa- are you able to do this um, when there are still a background of say, even in a major metro area, say you have 200 new cases a day, right? Which isn't a lot compared to what New York and New Jersey Metro was doing. New Jersey and New York Metro were doing, I think they were they had, at the peak, they had 11,000 new cases a day. I mean, of course, in, in those cases, forget about any type of isolation, contact tracing. You're just doing mass mitigation, which is what happened. But but at what level would you, do you think we would need to get to to make it to to make it uh, such that the public health infrastructure, even if we stood up and added whatever billions of dollars more, and what level would it, would it, does it seem practical to be able to do? Because it seems like in New York City, for instance, right? If you have 200 new cases a day, um, 200 people say half of them take the subway a day, right? And then you go back one to three days after they turn positive. And I mean, that seems like, my God, how many people must they have come into contact with? Well, you know, there's a bill that just got um, put into the Senate by uh, Michael Bennett in Colorado and Christian Gillibrand from New York which says they want to hire or support a million contact tracers throughout the U.S. Charlie Baker in Massachusetts just asked Partners in Health a few weeks ago to hire a thousand contact tracers uh, for the state. So people are getting started with with large, you know, I think in Connecticut, maybe we had, you know, we had yeah. very, we've had very, very few contact tracers. Right. Uh, and, it, and they get recreated to go after, you know, lone tuberculosis cases and things like that. Um, so there's going to have to be a massive human scale up. Um, yeah. massive testing scale up, you know, you know, the, we are nowhere near, you know, South Korea or New Zealand. It's just, we basically, um, fiddled while Rome burned and let all these, you know, it's so deeply embedded now across the American landscape yeah. that tracking down all these cases, it's going to, you know, it's a lot harder now than if we had started earlier and done the right thing. Right, right, right. I, I mean, I wonder, is, is it fair to wonder whether this is impossible to do given how widespread it is? Meaning, you know, each 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 contact tracing. I mean, I, I mean, I know there's some numbers about, you know, you you would need like, you know, some massive number just for each case. Um, yeah, and and also there's also the issue with, not with. I guess we'll we'll talk about this next, but um, but the serologic tests, correct? Do do you see the serologic tests helping here at all, or this is primarily going to be PCR because, because of course the problem with the PCR test is that. 
if you're negative today, that doesn't say anything about, you know, yeah. are you, are you, are you t positive tomorrow? So, I mean, are we going to serially test? It just, you know, I, I think New, the New Zealand, South Korea examples are given a lot and it's wonderful. It's amazing that what they, what they were able to do, but uh, unfortunately, you know, we can't go back in time. We don't have a way back machine to get back to the, their type of numbers. We have, we have a problem in a 300 million. Well, but I think we're in big trouble. Yeah. I think we're in big trouble. And I think, um, there's a little bit of still sort of head in the sand attitude. Um, like the whole national discourse of the past week has changed from like, um, let's keep, keep at it to like, you know, 10 states are reopening and, yeah. you know, social distancing restrictions from the federal level are being, you know, the guidance is there is expiring today. It's not going to be renewed and nobody's sort of standing up going, what are you all crazy? I mean, you know, right. the, the, the point is, is that, you know, we sort of don't care. Uh, yeah. Well, that, is it uh, is it in part driven by a uh, mentality of like it's not it's just not it, it's not possible anymore to get to New Zealand or get to whatever? It, it... No, because I, I I think everybody I think both public health people and economists and lots of clinicians will say like we don't have a choice. Um, I think there's just really no appreciation for the magnitude of the situation we're in, um, and um, you know the scale up is going to have to be immense, and we could still. You know, we're still not talking about becoming, you know, eradicating like New Zealand. We're talking about stemming the damage and mitigation at this point. Um, there's a new uh, piece up on the New York Times website about um, Georgia saying Georgia went first and we failed. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, clinicians in Georgia are already saying like this is this is a train wreck. You know, in in slow motion, starting to happen. You know, they haven't reduced their cases there. They their testing data is terrible. Um, you know, so. I think we're, we're still in damage control, but um, the appetite for it at the federal level and among some states is so low now that, you know, we're, we're in deep trouble, I think. Yeah. Uh, how have, we'll talk about, what are, what's your thoughts on antibody uh, testing? How, how do you see the uh, uh, serologic testing? What, what utility uh, do you feel that uh, they may have? Well, theoretically could be useful now, it's like the Wild West. It's like the FDA allowed companies to self-validate and get these things on the market. So like the city of Chicago was um, importing 11,000 tests from South Korea that the FDA had never seen. Um, and nobody knows what the sensitivity or specificity, the false positives or false uh, negative rates are gonna be for these tests. Um, nobody knows what uh, SARS-CoV-2 immunity looks like. Is it like some of the common cold coronaviruses? Uh, and has transient immunity, or are we talking about, you know, maybe you know the 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 first SARS virus, which maybe has two to three years immunity? We have very little knowledge about how it's going to work uh, and what it confers. Um, there's also a, there was a study that came out of China, and we capitulated by the study that came out of Institut Pasteur and the French uh, recently, that there are people who have hospitalized infections who don't develop antibodies. You know, a small fraction, but there's even you know there's a not unreasonable size fraction of about 30, 20% that have low levels, low titers of antibodies. You know, and ha does that confer protection or is there some other component of the immune system that's being responsible for this? Uh, and, you know, so we have the basic and clinical knowledge lacking in terms of what antibodies do and what they do in, in terms of conferring protection in the context of the disease. And then we have a whole sort of, you know, Wild West of, of tests out there that have not been evaluated properly. We have no idea how they work, if they work. Um, 
And then you have to figure out like, what is this gonna mean in terms of, you know, if we had a perfect antibody test, you know, we're gonna create two new classes of Americans and, and people in this country who are, you know, cleared and clean, and then the dirty susceptibles who are left. I mean, you know, there's like really a uh, weird dystopian uh, future ahead of us where these tests could be misused to sort of tell you uh, if you can return to, to normal life, quote unquote, normal life. Yeah. One, of the, one of the issues seems to be with uh, serologic testing that um, it, it, it's, not, it's not exactly a chip shot to validate these tests, right? Because you need negative controls and getting a negative control for, for this is not that easy, right? You need, you need either to go back, go back in pre, pre-coronavirus, pre-SARS-CoV-2 history and uh, find some serum and, and, and look there, correct? Um, and you have to figure out seasonality-wise when you're going to do that, because, of course, you're looking to see if there's cross-reactivity with these antibody tests to other yeah, coronaviruses. Exactly. And so this is, boy, oh boy, this is, seems really hard to figure out you know, what's a true, what's a true negative, what's a true negative and what isn't. And the issue of course seems to be with that is that, you know, in order to broadly scale testing, like it seems a lot of folks want, you have to open up testing to a swath of the population that may have a relatively low prevalence of disease. Right. So, Certainly, some of the testing is, I know I know the issues with specificity in, in terms of the various different uh, stuff uh, you know various different serologic surveys that have been done so far. I get it um, but but you know assuming that some places do have prevalence and I think a lot of you know Natalie Dean, for instance, who's a really good epidemiologist um, uh, who's who's have been reading her comments and stuff you know I mean I don't think I think there's some agreement and correct me if I'm wrong some agreement that you're probably in a lot of places in the country in single digit prevalence in terms of how many people have it, right? Which is bad because you're really far away from herd immunity. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's also bad uh, because my God, that, you know, in order to get, uh, you know, the, the type of test characteristic you need to test a prevalence of 4% and have that yep. come up with a meaningful number is close to impossible. So, you know, is, is, is testing this whole so testing seems really, really hard to get get right. Not for beyond the inability to have enough swabs and enough RNA extraction kits and and whatnot. So how how do you see how do you see us eventually being able to f- figure this out? Because again, I I get the sense that these are unique problems that that the world has kind of not faced before when it comes to these type you know the things that SARS-CoV two is kind of throwing at us. Well, remember. You know, uh, you know, this is not my first epidemic, and I remember like you know the, our problems with testing for HIV in the yeah. early. Oh, this is not, not unique new. in terms of like low prevalence. Like we're 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 a um, concentrated epidemic in the U.S. for HIV, and and so like very low prevalence among the general population, and trying to validate those assays. And I mean, so I I don't think it's a totally new thing. I think we're just in such a um, crisis right at such a, such a large scale that it's hard to sort of figure out how to sort of right keep keep our uh, handle on the epidemic while we're trying to deal with all these technical issues i do think you know one of the interesting things that i've seen is that um everybody keeps every all these labs are retooling themselves to do a lot of this work and they know it's not um paying their bills in terms of what they're supposed to do for nih or whatever 
Um, and I, I think there's a, I think like the clinical and, and scientific community has been pretty damn heroic in terms of what they've done both for patients, but also sort of, you know, they just developed a, a saliva-based assay here uh, for, I think it's, I think it's a, PC, a, a yeah. PCR. You know, so I think people are trying their hardest to sort of throw themselves into these, these sort of technical and, and, and scientific struggles. Um, well, you know, others sort of deal with the rest of the mess out there. Mm -hmm. uh, Greg, given those challenges, um, can you give us your your sense of the, uh, if we can call it the historical view, if we look at, you know, the, the next two to three to five years? Um, and and in light of what Sweden is, is trying to do, you know, with some comments saying, you know, they hope to achieve herd immunity in the next, you know, in, in Stockholm in the next couple of months, that sort of thing. Um, is it the the hope that we can sort of as much as possible keep the numbers down until the vaccine is around? I mean, is that the one realistic hope? Because otherwise, it, it seems that the uncertainty, the lockdown, the you know the, the, these things are, are sort of perpetuating, and, and it's hard to 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 understand what what criteria we're going to use to 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 get out of this. So I'm trying to keep a grip on my emotions lately because I think we're in. I mean, ever since like middle of April, when we were talking about liberate Virginia, liberate Minnesota, like, you know, all this crazy talk about just like sort of go outside, um, you know, it's hard to see what the end game is here. Um, I think <coughs> the resources we're going to need for testing, tracing and isolating is not there yet. Uh, the technical hurdles are there uh, as well. Um, and so we're in a situation where, you know, you could see in two months in the summer that, you know, more than half of the U.S. states have sort of relaxed social distancing in a way that that starts to to feed a new epidemic. And and I think the Natalie Dean article today um, with Caitlin Rivers at Hopkins, I think, suggests that, you know, if you want to count on herd immunity, you know, you're talking several years and a lot of dead bodies um, in terms of our elderly and our, our uh, medically already having underlying medical conditions. So it, yeah, I mean, basically, about a week and a half ago, I realized we're not New Zealand, you know, we're not even Italy or Spain. We're something that's uh, fairly unique in, in creating a set of policies that are designed to perpetuate the epidemic uh, and string it out for a longer amount of time. It's crazy if that sounds. I mean, uh, whether it's by malice or incompetence or, or sort of ignorance, it's, it, it sort of doesn't matter because I think it's just going to be, I don't know, I see two years stretching out um, in these waves of um, clinical crisis for hospitals where, you know, you have another wave of people coming into the IC, you know, into the emergency room, into the ICUs. My biggest fear is flu season. I mean, I remember in December, we were talking here at Yale New Haven Hospital about how they were already full. <laughs> They already had people in the hallways because they they were over their capacity. Can you imagine if coronavirus strikes, you know, in November, December here as flu season arrives as well? Um, <clears throat> I think we're, it's you know, I don't think we've seen anything yet in terms of um, what's in store for us. I'm trying to sort of remain hopeful and focused on sort of what needs to be done, um, but I also don't want to sort of be a Pollyanna and say like, you know, uh, it's going to go away overnight. It'll be gone. You know, it's 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 something that's here to stay. Are you you know Are you surprised by uh, I know I am. Uh, are you surprised by the fact that Florida, for instance, just as one example, where you had a 
kind of one of the one of these uh, you know a governor that was uh, how shall we uh, say it was was uh, certainly far more liberal in his views of what one should do uh, so you know he you know the beaches were open for for a long time in the midst of this epidemic etc yet you know we're sitting here april 30th and it's hard you know the, the, it's a massive state right i think 20 million is the population they have they have a thousand people that are dead the number of new cases they have is still in that 200 to 300 range why 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 are they not in the midst of a far worse situation as we kind of expected you know two or three weeks ago when they were kind of not doing what everyone else was doing well one is i think there's there's um spontaneous social distancing people are afraid and they're are staying away from home you know in the old days of the AIDS epidemic you know um there was a drop in sort of infections in the early years and everybody's like that must have been because of HIV prevention programs, but actually the curve of, of reduced sort of sexual contact happened before that because people were scared out of their wits. And so some of that's going on. I was actually talking to a Miami Herald reporter this afternoon, um, and I was looking on COVID tracker, covidtesttracking.com, I can't remember what the name of it is, the COVID testing project by the Atlantic. You know, data collection in Florida is terrible. They get a C and Georgia gets an A. So we're talking like, you know, you know, if Georgia gets an A and Florida gets a C in terms of data collection for, for just tests, we're, we're in trouble, right? Um, also, there's an article in, in Newsweek this, this afternoon about how the coroner's office has been um, told they cannot release um, autopsy and, and death reports over the past week to 10 days. And so there's a little bit of sort of um, yeah, playing a bit of fudging with the data yeah. in the state. But, you know, they might have, they, you know, if... Maybe they, they've, you know, I think they considered keeping the lockdown in Miami and Fort Lauderdale and some of their big sort of high risk uh, counties, Miami-Dade um, and others. Um, maybe that's been working. Um, and I think the governor is not talking about lifting restrictions in some of those sort of high risk counties. Although as I said to the reporter, you know, if the rest of the state is open, I don't understand how you're gonna keep people from going from one place to the next. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the Florida example, who, I do think some of the data showing that the epidemic is moving to rural, rural and more southern states um, as it sort of starts to wane in some of the sort of northeast metropolises. Yeah, really, really uh, interesting to see what, what kind of happens. Um, the, uh, the, other, um, the other thing you know, I wanted to talk about, especially given your, your background in, in AIDS, is uh, the data that just, well, I shouldn't say that. I said, well, whatever was leaked by Dr. Fauci kind of, uh, yesterday in, in regards to remdesivir. Um, uh, what do you have any, do you, I, I know from your Twitter account, you have some, you have some concerns. Uh, you want to discuss some of those? I mean, really people, I mean, you know, I've known the man for, you know, since I was in my twenties. I mean, I, I think he's, you know, he's done a lot of good in terms of infectious disease over the past 30, 40 years. Um, but to do it in a press release, you know, it just, there's no data there. It's just, you know, they're saying like, here, here's, here's what we saw, 30% reduction in, in time to recovery. Um, you know, there was no, the, the survival benefit wasn't statistically significant and everything is going to go to standard of care and the rest of the trials from now on. And, and you know, it's, <laughs> you know, who died and left Duke King. It's just like, the point is we need to see the data, you know, and, 
you know, so New England it, Journal it, yeah. needs, needs to, the investigators need to wrap it up and send it into New England Journal or to wherever they're going to get it published so we can all see it. I mean, there's some endpoint outcome switching, which probably could have been totally innocuous and, and um, benign, but like, if we got to know every, all with, this is a significant development. Right. And, and in light of the La the Lancet publication, which, you know, didn't show a superb effect for the drug. I mean, you know, maybe we're back at the level of AZT uh, in the early days of the epidemic, something that has modest or small effects. But like we spent 10 years arguing about whether it worked at all uh, right. after the, the first trial showed an 18 to one or 19 to one. Uh, uh, Death you know, difference. This, yeah. You know, which, you know, nobody believes 40 years later, but, you know, you grasp right, at straws right. in, the, in times like this. Right. No, uh, AZT. Uh, but that's the that's the interesting part is that he he Fauci himself kind of compared it to compared um, you know compared the what we're currently going through to when AZT initially uh, came out. Um, you know, it, clearly he feels the weight of uh, the controversy with AZT. Right. AZT. The AZT trial. You know, it was a blind placebo placebo trial RCT where uh, 19 people in the placebo arm ended up dying and only one person. And then, yeah. of course, the longer-term data showed that, uh, it, not done here, <laughs> done in Britain or whatnot, showed that, um, you know, over, France too. Right, in France, over time that there was a, you know, you kind of lost that mortality difference. And it seems like, or, I mean, again, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like from reading what Dr. Fauci said and um, I, Ellen Tadaldi and Dr. Moyer here, infectious disease at, uh, at uh uh, at Temple uh, in North Philly, fantastic training place. That's where I trained, and so uh, anything I know about HIV, I know from from them. But it seems like, you know, the 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 idea, or the reason that folks stopped responding to AZT was this was you know uh, was mutations that would happen, and so you wanted to try to get um, hit HIV, hit the virus from multiple different angles, so not not allow it to you know, that that chance to kind of kind of mutate and escape the effect of AZT. And AZT still is part of, of, of you know a variety of different cocktails correct so is it is, is it yeah, necessarily I mean, not so much but yeah it, is it is it is it the case that um that that you have a certain burden as a trialist um given that there's a significant difference that you're seeing 11 days versus 15 days in terms of time to recovery and that there's a trend towards mortality do you are you do you want to continue the trial until there is a mortality difference or or do you want to have a guy like Fauci who's you know super experienced and has done been around the block kind of look at it and say all right uh, you know this is enough for me I don't need to I don't need to continue people in a placebo arm because there's the ethics of kind of continuing a trial well the, well, the, being seen. well the data the data safety monitoring board made made the right. call not our, right right sorry so yeah they, you know yeah yeah and and I'm sure they you know I'm sure they saw like the the, the benefit in terms of uh, time to recovery, it was significant. They thought we got to stop it. Um, you know, we argued around ACT about whether it had a survival benefit for even past that initial trial uh, for a long time. And so I, I think it was a no-win situation. That they, the DSMB probably had to stop it. But like, who knows what this data is going to say, and who knows if it's going to pan out? Um, you know, the weird thing is now everything has to be tested against it, which sort of is like really on the basis of one trial that showed a modest effect and no survival benefit. I don't know. I mean, who knows? It's just, it's, yeah, we'll see. I mean, hopefully we learned our lesson from the ACT years and don't want to get stuck with 
what, what would you have done uh, differently in terms of the AZT years, in terms of how you, what you would you just continue the trial longer or? Well, with the ACT study was less of a question than it was for DDI and DDC and D4T, the sort of, you know, children of, of AZT and like the, 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 the sister drugs. We just kept doing it on these surrogate markers and never, never looked at survival, um, you know, and, you know, this is why the survival benefit is going to be important to sort of clarify because um, nobody knew if AZT extended life, you know, like you could get, you know, for D4T or TDI or DDC, you get seven more T cells, you know, and that was how they got approved. And it's like, you know, um, you know, this is going to be a drug that, you know, could be given to millions. Who knows what Gilead's going to charge for it? Um, you know, there'll be pressure to sort of reformulate it for something oral, so that maybe it could be used for prep. I mean, a lot of money could be invested in in this drug without sort of really understanding what the clinical benefits are in terms of survival of patients. How would you? So how would you? Meaning, how would you design? Um, how would you design the trial different? Is there a different way you would specifically design the trial to kind of get it, get at it, or would you have done the AZT trial differently? I mean, uh, I'm trying to get it. How, how does one? How does one? You know, it is it is hard. You have a novel pathogen. No, I think the, I think the AZT how do you do it? People said with the AZT trial, people doctors could under could could guess who is on yeah. AZT, right um, right. on the drug by. Uh, mean corpuscular volume or something else. Um, in this case, I mean, what are you supposed to do? I mean, the we, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say. It just, I'm not going to second guess the DSMB until I see the data. But you know, um, you know, we can try, you know, to try do some sort of new, newer um, uh, kind of tools, looking at the observational data to see if we can retrieve a, a survival benefit you know, using G computation and, and some sort of sort of tools of causal inference on observational data. But like, you know, the chance to get that survival endpoint now is. Right. Although in defense of the, the decision by the, by the board, the DSMB, um, you know, this is an acute illness, uh, you know, short term. So I think there may be more value to the surrogate endpoints like, you know, time of the ventilator and, and time to discharge. You know, I mean, I think it makes more sense to, know that this will probably translate into a benefit in mortality uh, as opposed to having to follow people you know for years who are who have a chronic illness and that that is not eradicated but yeah, it's challenging yeah. yeah no i think this is the the fight we had back then too even in the context of you know people people time from diagnosis to to death in the old days was was it wasn't like this but it was you know it was pretty quick um but you know, it is a weird thing. It's like it's a small to modest benefit in terms of time to recovery, um, and it doesn't sync up with the survival benefit. You know, I don't know. I, it just it, here we go again. We're going to have like a combination therapy trial against the single. It's going to be, yeah. I mean, it is an acute disease. Yeah. Um, we'll see. But I'm just going to get access to this too, because yeah. it's like. It's not, there's not gonna be enough to go around. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, access is always an issue. But you know, the AIDS, the AIDS uh, story is, um, is an amazing success, correct? I mean, to think about where we are now uh, relative to where um, where we started in 1981 or whenever that initial report, initial report of five, five folks. No vaccine, no yeah. vaccine, no vaccine. And it took us, you know, 15 yeah. years to get, We, I mean, nobody, Nobody sort of really thought we were going to survive until 1996, <laughs> until we saw, 
you know, the protease inhibitors. So like it did take 15 years to, to get to that place. Right. Um, right. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Dr. Gonzalez, any, any other questions, uh, Michelle? No, I think, uh, I think that was a uh, very informative and, and, yeah. uh, clearly you brought out the, the, the challenges that, uh, that we're facing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, uh, nobody would have thought in December that we'd be living in these interesting times. Yeah. Yeah. Really unfortunate, but hopefully, hopefully we muddle through, uh, somehow. <laughs> All right, Dr. Gonzalez, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks to both of you. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.